Please open your Bibles to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. We're pausing our study of John this morning um, to do Psalm, to study Psalm 5. I have a I have a goal of trying to, I love the Psalms. I, I hope to go through all the Psalms. We've done about 60 of them in the last 15 years or so. And rather than continuing the uh, Roman numerals, I was, Renee Zimmerman suggested to me that we might run out of them pretty quickly if I didn't pause. I thought after eight parts, um, it'd be good to pause before we dive back into John 10 next week in a new section. So Psalm 5. I love the Psalms. And while you turn there, let me try to set up for you a little bit of some of the challenges and some of the values in the Psalms. Uh, one writer has said, and I think this is helpful, that the Apostle Paul most clearly and succinctly summarizes Christian doctrine. His epistles are probably the most clear and full distillations of Christian doctrine. Not the only, but Romans, Galatians. But the Psalms uniquely express the Christian emotional life, anguish, joy, victory, triumph, despair, sorrow, grief. They're they're in the Psalms. The Psalms are also unique, and and I've said this before, but normally, Scripture is God speaking to man. So, So God gives the word to the prophet, the prophet stands between God and man, and then God sends the prophet to go speak to man. And that is happening in the Psalms, but it happens uniquely by listening in, as it were, on spirit-filled men and women speak to God. These are songs David composed, the one in particular this morning is a Davidic psalm, and here's a man of God, filled, controlled by the Spirit, singing, pouring out his heart to God. The psalms are roadmaps, if you will, for emotional life. Do do, do you wonder, how do do I deal with grief? The psalms can show you a way to deal with grief. How, How do I deal with, this morning, false accusation, enemies, threats against me? How do I do that in a righteous and godly way? How do I take this, this maelstrom of emotions within me? How do I channel that righteously? Psalms like Psalm 5 will show us how. And the Psalms are full of rich theology. If, if you're ever tempted to think that the Christian life is only meant to be just praise God, happy, happy, joy, joy, a third to half the Psalms are lament. When, when God gave his people a songbook and a third to half of the songs he gave express sorrow and grief. The Bible is a very realistic book about the Christian life. Now this morning's psalm, Psalm 5, that we'll be studying, we'll try to deal with it in its entirety, has some additional challenges. Additional challenges. In it, we, we wrestle with how, how do you deal with the desire for justice when you've received grace? How, how do you do that? Um, there, are, there are some psalms in the Psalter called imprecatory psalms, psalms of cursing. And we get a note of that in here, verse 10 in particular. And this is in a psalm where David is celebrating God's covenant, loyal, forgiving love. How, how does that work? How does that factor in? So beginning to wrestle through some of those things. And as I counsel and talk with people in my own life, the desire for justice, Lord, repay them, deal with this, make it right, is not a wrong emotion in and of itself. We've even seen in in John 10, did we not, Jesus, for judgment I came into this world. Souls under the throne of God in Revelation chapter five cry out how long, O Lord, till you vindicate our blood on the earth. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, in the new covenant, in the new testament, God said just love everybody. Yeah, that's not all he said. And it's not as simple as that. So let's read Psalm 5. 
and then we will pray, and then we'll try to work our way through it. Psalm 5. A psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth. Let's pray, Lord God. Give us eyes to see the goodness of this psalm. Help us to understand how we can celebrate your grace and call upon your justice. That we might be more concerned with zeal for your house than for our own, that we might learn how to take our fear, our anxiety, our sense of outrage at wrongs being done against us and and submit them to your throne for your perfect justice. And let us learn how to join in worship and praise with those so suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this psalm over five points. We're going to look at this psalm over five points. And in each one of them, I'm highlighting David's approach to God and his character. Uh, the title, Deliver Me, O God, of Justice and Grace. I'm trying to highlight the, the fact that justice and grace are both celebrated. You, you see in verse 7, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Now there's David celebrating grace. But look down at verse 10. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. In this psalm, David is celebrating the abundance of God's steadfast love, and he's calling upon God's wrath and judgment because of the abundance of their sins. How do we we balance that? How do we we make sense of that in light of what the Bible has to say? Um, That's that's part of the challenge. So David is, is appealing to God both as just and gracious. In fact, one of the texts we're going to look at um, is is Exodus 34, where God makes it clear that's his character. But first, first point, David trusts in the Lord's compassion. David trusts in the Lord's compassion. And we've got to begin with his context, his context. Now, Psalm 5 is at the very beginning of the Psalter. We're trying to figure out its placement. You remember the book of Psalms opens with two Psalms, and whoever compiled this book of Psalms... um, clearly had intent in the way it was compiled. 
the fact that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 open the Psalter is not accidental. The two main themes. Psalm 1, there's the way of wisdom and there's the way of folly. There's the way of life. There's the way of death. There's the way of the one who fears the Lord and meditates in his counsel. And there's the one who walks in the way of scoffers and sinners and who, like the chaff, is swept away. So there's your first major theme. The second major theme in Psalm 2 is God will right all wrongs by establishing his Messiah King who will rule the nations with a rod of iron and the kings of the earth would do well to rejoice with trembling and do homage to the Son lest he destroy them. That's the other major theme. But then, in case anyone is tempted to think that could Psalm 2 ultimately be about David, it clearly uses Davidic language. The Lord said to me, you're my son today, I've begotten you. That's the Davidic covenant right there. Maybe somebody might think that Psalm 2 is really hyperbolic, over-the-top, glowing praise of David. Could David be the final fulfillment of Psalm 2? Look at the psalm title of Psalm 3. Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's not accidental. Whoever compiled the Psalms is making it clear. This Davidic king in Psalm 2, who all the kings of the earth would do well to honor. I mean, look at, look at Psalm 2.10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This mighty Davidic king in Psalm 2. Is that David? No, David's the guy who fled from his son. David's the guy whose own household mounted a coup. And he had to flee Jerusalem. No, no, no. David is not the final fulfillment of Psalm 2. Well, that's quite intentional. And the, the very next Psalms in the Psalter are David crying out for help. David crying out for help. They're, they're Davidic. Psalm 5 in particular matches perfectly Psalm 4. Look at the end of Psalm 4, verse 8. And these are all David crying out in distress. David crying out for help. David filled with anxiety. And we get the point. Whoever's being talked about in Psalm 2 is greater than David. But Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So Psalm 4 is sometimes called an evening psalm. Sleepless night, filled with anxiety, casting your cares upon God, and I'm going to go to sleep. And Psalm 5 is oftentimes referred to as a morning psalm, because look at verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. So that's, that's how it kind of fits in here. But, but more to the point, I believe Psalm 5 is, is taking place in a chunk of Psalms, Psalm 3 all the way to 6, of David's fleeing from Absalom. Let me read um, one commentator points it out this way. Psalm 3, 4, and 5 make use of key phrases and terms that have been introduced in Psalm 1 and 2. We'll see this. Along with drawing on language and themes from Psalm 3 and 4. They, they seem to be interconnected, in other words. The next psalm, with new historical information in its title, is Psalm 7, which um, informs us that it's related to the events of 2 Samuel um, 16. This indicates that Psalms 3 to 7 are to be read in light of the reference to David's flight after Absalom's revolt in this title of Psalm 3. Psalm 3 and 4 both reflect the danger that David was in from the council of Ahithophel. Ahithophel just, so David's son, Absalom, mounts a coup, and for a while it seems to be victorious. David flees. And Ahithophel is the one David's worried about. Ahithophel is sided with the, the uh, insurrectionist, but he's wise. He's, he's, he's wily. And David actually prays against his counsel. And Ahithophel's counsel is on the money. He tells Absalom, you go after David. He's a man of war. You do not let him muster a defense. You get him now while he's weak and powerless. And David prays, O Lord, confound Ahithophel's counsel. And God does. And Ahithophel's counsel is ignored. And Absalom gives David time to regroup. Um, 
And so Psalm 3 and 4 reflect the danger David was in from the council of Ahithophel. He had advised Absalom to attack David the night of his flight. This seems to inform David's references to lying down and sleeping in safety. If Psalm 3 and 4 reflect the night of crisis, Psalm 5 is David's prayer in the morning after these difficulties. Now, there's some other reasons in the psalm I think this is best understood as during David's flight from Absalom. Whatever's going on here, David is not in Jerusalem. David is not near the ark, the tent. he's, He's got people maligning him people slandering him, threats against his life. So you'd either have to put this at one of his periods of fleeing from Saul or, as I'm suggesting, his flight from Absalom. The reason I think it's significant in this flight from Absalom, this is after the Davidic covenant and this is after his his murder of Uriah and his adultery of Bathsheba. Uh, I can't be dogmatic on that, but I believe the context likely written during Absalom's coup, likely written. It seems to fit this block of Psalms of David crying out for help. Okay. More on that later. Point B, then, as we start into the text, his call, his call. And it's threefold. He wants the Lord's attention. Verse 1, give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Verse 2, give attention to the sound of my cry. There's repetition. You get the the idea. He begins, help, listen to me. And one of the things I want you to notice is a child of God can be persistent and imperative like this with the right attitude. Jesus talks about the persistent widow. It's not as though, well, you said it once, David. The Lord knows. You can be quiet now. David feels free to pour out his heart. Give ear to my words. The second one, consider my groaning, literally my inward meditations, my thoughts. David wants the Lord to take consideration not just of what he says, but what's going on inside. The things maybe he's not expressing, his, his thoughts, his musings. And ultimately, it crescendos his words and what's going on inside to a cry for help. T- take it all to consideration, Lord, David is saying. Take it all to consideration and give ear. And the repetition makes that point clear. But also notice his supplication. How you do this is, makes all the difference in the world. That we cry out to God for help. That like the persistent widow, we knock and we knock and we knock for justice is great. Do so as a supplicant, not as a Lord. There's a way we can do this where, where God, you, you better keep your promises, God. You better show up and do something. That's not the right way to do this. David does it, my God and my king. So even as he's persistent, even as he's energetic, even as he is filled with alarm and passion, he's addressing his king and his God. And isn't it interesting to note that the Davidic king himself has a king? And as much as this is David's individual song and psalm that I believe he wrote when he was fleeing from Absalom, it's addressed to the choir master. David took this and, and had it added to Israel's corporate worship. So this can't only be a personal and individual psalm because it's been given for corporate singing, corporate consumption. And so David is letting Israel know that even as he's the king and many Israelites come to him for justice, right? You go to the king and you appeal for justice. Their king is in the same position as them. He has a king above him. And David also needs to appeal to God for help and for justice. He's, He's not in a unique position in that sense. The king has a king, And the language is personal. This is my God, my king, precisely because the Lord is David's Lord. The the Lord is David's God. David can draw close to him. And the other thing we see is his confidence. He's not crying out in desperation, maybe God will answer. He's crying out this way, this boldly, precisely because he believes God will answer him. We see in verse 3 his confidence. 
So you put the whole package together. There's supplication, my God, my King. There is alarm, there is energy, there is repetition, but there's also confidence. Put that package together and it honors God. His confidence. In the morning, you hear my voice. There's no doubt in his mind God will answer him. There's no doubt in his mind God will hear him. Now God may not do the things he asked for in his timetable, but whatever happens, David is convinced the Lord will hear. The Lord will receive his cry. The Lord will not turn a deaf ear to what he's praying. In the morning, you will hear. And then in the morning, the ESV says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That might be right. Literally, the Hebrew is just, I prepare. And some connect that with preparing the morning sacrifice. Possible. What's the, what's the get takeaway for us? David has prayed this at night. And he's getting up in the morning looking for the answer. He's expecting results. He's expecting a response. He doesn't just pray it off and say, okay, the, the Lord will do whatever. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. He prays, and then he's, I'm getting up early, and I'm going to be ready and watching to see what the Lord does. That's, that's how you cry out to God in faith. He, he's, he's filled with anxiety. He's filled with energy, but he's also doing it in an honoring and supplicating way, but he's also doing it in faith, trusting God will answer, that God cares for him. So we see David trusts in the Lord's compassion. Turn now to uh, David's recounts the Lord's righteousness. So the first chunk is one petition three times. Listen, listen, listen. There's no petitions in verses four to six. David is rehearsing God's character. And in particular, he's rehearsing God's character as it relates to his righteousness. This is a setup for a call for judgment later. So there's no petitions here. He is recounting to God who he is. This is good medicine for us. It's not as though God doesn't know who God is. But by saying this, by praying this, by singing this, David's reminding himself. This is how he reasoned with God. This is who you've said yourself to be, God. This is who your works reveal you to be, God. This is who you are, God. And then in light of that, he's going to make requests. So what does he highlight? Well, he highlights the fact that God has nothing to do with evil and hates it. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Very quickly, what the ESV says may not dwell with you is even, a, is even more simplified than that. It's literally evil may not sojourn with the Lord. This is a word used of the alien sojourner, someone who's temporarily stopping and setting up camp. The Lord is so holy that evil can't even make a house visit. It can't spend the night. It can't camp temporarily. It can't sojourn with him. Next, he hates all evildoers. Let's pause here because the text is clear and emphatic. It's, it's, it's popular to say, love the sinner, hate the sin. And what people mean by that is pretty much accurate, but it's not a really good way to say it. God doesn't send sin, but sinners to hell. God doesn't send sin. He sends sinners to hell. And here, and in many other places in the Psalms, we get clear and unambiguous statements that God hates sinners. I think maybe a better way of saying it is God in this life hates the sinner and loves the sinner, and that will be resolved finally by the eschaton. Eventually, all of humanity will either be those who enjoy his steadfast love forever or those who enjoy his wrath and fury forever. We all, according to Ephesians, were born children of wrath, were we not? Whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. 
So in a very real sense, God is angry with. God hates all evildoers. Such were us. That, that's the reality. And God is able to do that and yet at the same time extend in love the offer of the gospel to his son. It doesn't, God can hate all evildoers and so love the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Both of those things are true and eventually only one of those realities will last for each and every person. That will resolve itself. But for now, they're both true. God hates all evildoers. Some of the other psalms that make this point, unless you think this is unique here. Psalm 11, um, 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Or Psalm 97, 10. And and let me make this clear. God's hatred is a necessary part of his love. Um, what, What I mean is, if I love my wife or my children, how do I feel about that which would threaten or harm them? Doesn't my love for my wife or my children demand a hatred, an opposition to the one who would try to kill them, the one who would hurt them? God's love of his elect and of his children demands his response to the enemy who would destroy them, which is why some... Um, what's the reference here? Psalm 97.10 says this, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. You can't love God without hating not God. Loving God demands you have an equal abhorrence of and revulsion of that which opposes him. So you can't just, well, I just love everything. You better not love evil. Better not love evil. If you're going to love God, you better love evil. If you love evil, who are you going to hate? You're going to hate God. This is, this is back to John 3.19. This is the judgment. Light came into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light. Your love of one thing will create and demand your hatred of the other. So there's no, there's no tension with God saying he is love and God hating. It's different expressions of the same attributes to different objects. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And ultimately, because God hates the evildoers, he will destroy them. This is what hell is. David's entirely orthodox. He abhors and destroys the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Now, David is highlighting particular sins that are, that are against him right now, particular things he's in dilemma of. It's not as though only lying and bloodthirstiness are what God abhors, but in this case, this summarizes the threat against him. David's being falsely accused. There's a conspiracy afoot. He's been overthrown. His throne and his, his, his kingdom has been taken from him. His own son is spreading lies about him. His kingdom is in upheaval. And so he, he takes comfort in saying, the Lord hates these things. The things that are being done against me, God cares about. It, it's okay to hate that wrong is being done to you. I'll talk to people sometimes who are um, suffering wrongs, mistreatment. And I'll sometimes say to them, as they will express feeling guilt about being so troubled, you don't hate it nearly enough. God is furious about what has happened. Now, what you do 
with that outrage, what you do with that troubling, that's, that matters everything. But in one sense, you, you're not upset enough about the wrongs being done against you, not compared to how God feels about it. If the Psalms are to be believed, if Scripture is to be believed, God is passionately concerned about the evils and injustice done against his people. And like I said at the beginning, souls, disembodied souls under the throne of God in heaven are concerned for vengeance on their blood. It's not as though the gospel comes and all such thoughts are altered or changed or removed or eliminated, but rather they must be correctly processed. David, David reminds himself of God's character. He recounts the Lord's righteousness. Point three, David depends upon the Lord's grace. David depends upon the Lord's grace. And here the contrast is set up. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Now what the ESV translates as the abundance of your steadfast love is the term that Hebrew consistently uses for God's covenant, loyal, gospel love. We talked about this in my ABF last week, that God loves the flowers and God loves the creation, but he loves his people in a particular way. And this word, this Hebrew, chesed, translated steadfast love in the ESV, is, is consistently and only used to speak of that reality. David will enter God's house, not by his own justice. There's their first clue of how to resolve this. David's not saying, they're bad, but I'm good. He's saying, you hate evil, but I've received mercy. And through the abundance of your mercy, not the abundance of his faithfulness, David's not saying, but I, through the fact that I shared the gospel 27 times last week, David's not saying, but I, through my faithful attendance to church and tithing regularly, David says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. In other words, David counts upon God's covenant love. David counts upon God's covenant love. And I'm going to pause here and turn to Exodus 34. Um, I've alluded to this, but I want to look at it briefly. In Exodus 34, God's about to consume Israel for their idolatry of the golden calf. And Moses intercedes for them, cries out for them. And the Lord relents. As far as I can tell, this is the first successful intercession in Scripture. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord hears his intercession, but there can't even be found ten righteous men, and so the cities are overthrown. Here we see, I think, the first successful intercession. Here an intercessor stands up and pleads for guilty people. The Lord relents. And in that context, Moses is so bold in verse of chapter 33, verse 18, to say, show me your glory. And in chapter 34, the Lord hides him in a cleft of a rock and passes by and says his name. Verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34. I start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generations. 
Now there we see both edges of this blade. There we see both sides of God's holiness. God says, you wanna know my glory? You wanna know who I am? I mercy whom I mercy and it's overflowing and it's generational, but I don't let guilty people go free. And I'd expect Moses would go, wait, what? (laughs) I, I don't think the resolution of that is immediately clear to Moses. It certainly wouldn't be to me. Now this side of the cross, it's clearer. But David is praying along both of these axes. David is playing along both of these revealed characteristics of God. Who is God? What's his glory? Two things here. He is just. He punishes iniquity and sin. He does not wink at it. He does not let it get, and get away from him. And he's abundantly forgiving. Psalm 5 is David praying both of those realities. Both of those realities centered on God's holiness and character. Now, we've got to figure out how to, how to do that because I think there's an ugly and wrong way to try to synthesize these, and there's a right way. But that he's doing, it should be obvious. He's just recounted, God, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. The evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Is that not visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children who by no means let the guilty go free? And yet he celebrates in verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, back to Psalm 5. What I'm I'm trying to highlight is these two themes, God's justice and wrath and God's grace and forgiveness. They are at the centerpiece. When when Moses says, tell me me your glory, show me your glory, the Lord says, I'll show you my glory. It's seen in my abundant mercy and it's seen in my justice. Both of those themes are right here. We got, the work we got to do is to try to synthesize them in a, in a way that's God-honoring and right. So he counts upon God's covenant love. He counts upon God's covenant love. And this is important because if I'm right in setting this psalm, David's already committed murder. He's already committed adultery, wife-stealing. David is as guilty in some senses as the people he's praying about. And he's aware of it. So it's not, Lord, you hate evildoers, but I'm good. It's, Lord, you hate evildoers, but I've received your covenant mercy and love. Also, notice David's confidence. He will enter God's house. He will enter God's house. And I've suggested to you that whether or not you accept my suggestion that this is during Absalom's coup or whether this is during Saul's persecution, um, it, it almost certainly is not taking place while David's ruling from Jerusalem. David would have the military power and might to squash the conspiracy. Which means David's not near the ark. He's not near the tent of meeting in Shiloh or if it's at Obed-Eben or if it's already in Jerusalem. And, and in the coup, as David's fleeing Jerusalem, I just want to highlight a remarkable note that lines up with this very well in Second um, Samuel. So David's fleeing Jerusalem in Second Samuel. Absalom's mounted this coup. And in 15, 24, and 25, he meets on his way out, Abiathar the high priest, and Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city, which is a great act of loyalty. Zadok is saying, where the king goes, where my lord the king, where the lord's anointed goes, the Ark's going there too. If you're leaving the city, so are we. They stand in solidarity with David. David says this to them. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. 
If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and let me see both it and His dwelling place. Well, I think we see here in verse 7, David's confidence the Lord will do that just that. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. David's confident he will enter God's house. Point C, now we get to um, his next petition, though. In order to do that, he's going to need God's guidance. He's confident the Lord will bring him back, but he will need God's guidance. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So you're bringing me back. I will worship you again but I'm going to need your guidance, Lord, because I've got enemies. That's David's prayer and his confidence. So his first petition is hear me. Now his second petition, guide me, direct me. And if you're, if you're experiencing this, remember this is given to the corporate Psalter. And so God's people will be slandered, falsely accused, maligned, gaslit, I think is a common term these days. God's got psalms for people falsely accused, slanderers, liars, flatterers, people bloodthirsty of deceit. And one of them is in those situations, you need God's leading and guidance. It's, It's hard to know how to respond. It's hard to know how to act. David needs God's guidance. He's confident God will hear him, and he's confident God will lead him back, but he knows he need he can't walk in his own counsel. He he can't plan his steps. He can't figure out how to get from point A to point B. Lord, lead me. He desperately needs God's guidance to do so. And of course, borrowing from our shepherd theme from our eight weeks in John, Psalm 23, right? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. So if you're, if you're being falsely accused, if you're in this type of turmoil, you need God to guide you. It is hard to know how to walk through that righteously. So David, David recounts the Lord's righteousness and he depends upon the Lord's grace, which brings us to point four. David calls upon the Lord's justice. David calls upon the Lord's justice. And, and the next two verses really just form almost like a legal argument. You get the prosecution and the judgment. You can think of the prosecuting attorney summarizing the offenses of the guilty and then speaking to the men and women of the jury or speaking to the judge in light of their guilt. You must find them guilty. You must sentence them. That's the way this works. So, verse 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So that's what they've done. Here's, here's what justice demands. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. So, the prosecution, he recounts his enemy's guilt. And again, in this particular case, it's about treachery, deceit, lies. And they're plotting evil for him. And ultimately, these lies and these deceptions are threatening his life. I mean, if Absalom and his people get a hold of David, they'll kill him. In light of that, God must judge them. But before, before we get to that, let me highlight one other interesting reality 
Um, notice that even though his enemies are many, he, he attributes to them singular organs, their mouth, their throat, their tongue. Um, a commentator by the name of Wilson highlights this. It's interesting to note, he writes, that in Hebrew, these verses, uh, in these verses, the psalmist refers to the enemies with plural nouns, but they're consistently viewed as sharing a single body part. They have only one mouth, one heart, one throat, one tongue. And this is unusual. This feature is irregular enough that it seems obvious the psalmist is seeking to portray his multiple enemies as a single entity acting in concert. And there's a conspiracy afoot, and they're acting in concert, so they have one mouth, one throat. So that's their guilt. That's their guilt. What does he want the Lord to do about it? He wants judgment. And this is in part why he's recounted God's holy stance against sin back in verses 4 to 6. We already know how God feels about evil. He hates it. And they're guilty. So do the math. If God is righteous and hates evildoers and evil, and if these people are evil and unrighteous, then the judgment follows. And he wants them to expose, ensnare, and expel them. Make them bear their guilt. Don't acquit them. Don't pardon them. Let them fall by their own counsels, possibly even a reference to Ahithophel, the counsel he would give. And because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. There there is a, a contrast here. He enters God's house because of the abundance of God's steadfast love. These people need to enter judgment because of the abundance of their sin and their wickedness. He wants them to cast them out. Which brings up a, a potential problem, and I want to pause here and, and face it. And that is this. Is David here being a hypocrite? Is David here being an unrighteous hypocrite? There's a way of reading this psalm that David would be exactly that. Let, let me read to you a parable Jesus gave in Matthew 18. And I want to know, is, is, G, is, is David doing this? Let, let's acknowledge there's an ugly way to read this. Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But while the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's David doing what that wicked servant did. Let me frame how you could read it this way. He's, I don't believe he is. But David's, David's a murderer, a wife stealer, an adulterer, and David has been forgiven. 
And through the abundance of God's steadfast love, he will enter God's house. But God, don't show them steadfast love. Punish them, God. Make them pay. Don't forgive them. I'm so glad you've forgiven me, but don't forgive them. If that's what David's doing, I think then he's doing this and it's wicked. I don't think that's what he's doing. But I, I want to acknowledge on the face of it, this is, this is the challenge with the imprecations in the Psalms. This is why so often they're ignored and not dealt with because we as Christians rightly don't know what to do with calls for justice when we've received grace. How, how can I call for justice on my enemy when God's been so gracious to me? In light of my sin against God, isn't any personal offense done to me but piddly and small by comparison? Yes, it is. So four reasons, we can talk more about this in the ABF, but four reasons why I don't think David's doing it. The blank here, David is not being a self-righteous hypocrite. Number one, the psalm itself directs us in this attention. It's not personal offense that's upset him. Look at the end of verse 10. They have rebelled against you. They have rebelled against you. And that's not just righteous, pious words. As David is fleeing Jerusalem in another event recorded in 2 Samuel 16, one of, da- one of Saul's descendants by the name of Shemei is following him along a ridge, cursing at him. Let me, let me read to you. King David came to Baharim. There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shemei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. So it is within David's power to have this man killed. David's mighty men are willing. They're volunteering. Let me go kill him. How dare he talk to you that way? And if David were consumed with personal effrontery, if this was about him, he could easily have said, go go do it. What does David say? What have I to do with you, you son of Zeruiah? That's his sister, by the way. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. No, I believe David shows amply that he is not filled with personal animosity. This isn't a personal issue. He really is troubled that God has been sinned against. He really is troubled with the wickedness of this. When Absalom's coup is ended and Absalom is killed, David weeps for him. He's not personally vindictive. And ultimately, he leaves this in God's hands. David himself knows you can move from both categories. God will punish the wicked and those who experience his steadfast love will enter his tents. And David knows he, he, he was in that camp. And so the, the final judgment's not out. Point two, he is trusting in God's justice and not his own. He's trusting in God's justice and not his own. So what does that mean for us? Can you pray for God to judge evil? I believe you can if you'll leave it in his hands and his timetable. I believe you can 
If you're able to still give a glass of water to those who hurt you, I believe you can if you can still bless those who curse you. Let's say, Lord, as things now stand, they, they hate you. As they now stand there doing great harm and great evil, Lord, end it. End them. The, the Psalms give us this pattern. We've got to wrestle through this. And, and you can't even just say, well, that was in the Old Testament because, like I said, in Revelation 5, Lord, how long do you avenge our blood? We're, we're, we're waiting for our blood to be avenged. Martyred Christians cry out to God under his throne. We can talk more about this in the ABF. Final point. David rejoices in the Lord's protection. David rejoices in the Lord's protection. Verse 11 and 12. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous. O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, what was an individual prayer now becomes corporate. David invites us all to rejoice with him. So maybe going through the psalm up to this point, this hasn't been your experience. Hopefully this isn't your experience. Hopefully right now you don't have many enemies slandering you after your life. If you do, you've got a psalm for you. If you don't, here's the part where God's people join in and rejoice with David. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. By the way, that also implies if some of the people in verse 9 and 10 were to switch allegiances, let them also rejoice. Even in the, even in the parable of the wicked steward, he's demanding justice against a man who owes him and is begging for mercy. David's enemies aren't asking for mercy. So while they remain intent, while they do not fear God, while they are unrepentant, as things now stand, deal with them. And yet David, of all people, knows that you can change how things stand. You can confess your sin, and Nathan can say that the Lord's forgiven you, has taken away your iniquity. But as things now stand, as things are, Lord, deal with it. Maybe that'd be the last thing of praying for justice. Can you pray justice against your enemy if you're willing to also rejoice if the Lord brings them to repentance and faith? David knows that God can be gracious and forgiving. He's celebrating God's grace and forgiveness to him, and yet he can pray against his enemies. But I believe he does so in a way, recognizing as things now stand, and things may change. David invites us all to rejoice with him. This is a common enough theme in the Psalms of inviting the corporate body so that we, even who are not experiencing this type of persecution and suffering, can rejoice and gather and sing and comfort those who do. Point B, note also, individual grace is meant to create corporate praise. Individual grace is meant to create corporate praise. This is why not just prayer requests, but praises in our ABF time are so important. If God has been good to you, tell others about it. David is sharing his trial, he's sharing his prayer requests, but he's also sharing his confidence in who God is and he's sharing it to the, the, the community of Israel. He's putting it in, this, in the songbook. And the result is praise. Individual grace is meant to create corporate praise. And this is a pattern we see again and again in the Psalms. Psalm 34. Let's read to you the first few verses. It begins individual, and individual worship leads to corporate worship. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. There's the invitation. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And again and again, the pattern in the Psalms and the scriptures, you start with your own worship. And it, 
genuine, true worship should lead to corporate worship. It should desire. I want to worship God with others. Point C. Individual acts of grace remind us all who God is. And that's the point David's making here. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favors, with a shield. Now this is always true of God. You can read through the Old Testament and you can see God blessing and protecting the righteous. By the way, the righteous here are synonymous with those who take refuge in you, those who love your name, those who fear you. It's not the, the bad guys and the good guys. It's the bad guys and the guys who love the Lord. It's the bad guys and those who take refuge in the Lord. That's the contrast here. Let's not be confused. David's entering the house not on his own deeds, but through the abundance of God's steadfast love. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice, even if some of those who take refuge in you were previously those who were conspiring against you. And so God's individual protection of David reminds us, yes, our God is a protector. Our God is a defender. Our God upholds his people. This is where Christian biography can be so helpful because you're reminded, oh, hey, yeah, wait. God did uphold George Mueller. God did uphold Adonai Judson. God did uphold these people. And David here is letting the congregation of Israel and letting the church today know God is faithful to him. His hope is in God. God will see him through this and we're reminded. So David invites all of the congregation. Let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Why? Let them sing for joy. Why? Because he blesses the righteous and he covers them with favors with a shield. That's why. And you're reminded of that. This is another reason why you should share God's faithfulness in your life. It reminds others of who God is so that we can rejoice. Oh, yeah. Duh. God is good. He's faithful. He's a defender. God surrounds the righteous with his protective favor. We're going to sing our closing song. I see Mike in the back because it fits perfectly. But before we do, I just want to read one last quote. This psalm, um, in fact, this psalm highlights those two realities of God, and I really like this quote by um, Wilson. God's holiness offers sinful humanity both its greatest problem and its greatest hope. Because a holy God cannot wink at sin or turn a blind eye to it, sinful humans find themselves under his judgment in need of salvation and reconciliation. But because he is also relentlessly good, he has provided a way first through Israel and ultimately through Christ, that they can be restored to a right relationship with him. The key to what humans receive from God, judgment or mercy then, is not a change in the character of God, but the nature of how humans relate themselves to him. Arrogant evildoers who align themselves with evil receive the consequences of God's holiness in relationship to sin, judgment. But those who fear him, and by this phrase, he means to acknowledge our dependence receive spiritual restoration and blessing. God's love, you will ultimately be a receiver of God's love or his hatred for eternity. God's anger at your sin or God's love for you in Christ. This psalm celebrates both realities. I'm going to call the worship team up and we're going to sing our closing song. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you would um, cause us to be those who take refuge in you, that you would cause us to be those who rejoice in you and fear your name that we would not be found among the company of evildoers, those who delight in evil and bloodshed. But rather, Lord, we trust that through the abundance of your steadfast love, we will enter your house and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.